You're listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. I'm Adam Rispin, Content Marketing Manager at Intercom. Today's episode features a conversation with Purnima Vijay Shankar. Purnima is the founder of Femgineer, an education startup helping tech professionals advance their careers and build great product while promoting inclusivity in the industry. A software engineer by trade, Pornima began Femgineer as her personal blog while working as a founding engineer at Mint.com, the now huge personal finance SaaS company. She still blogs regularly and recently co-wrote a book, Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking. My chat with Pornina covers how we can build great products around customer empathy. You can certainly do, you know, listening sessions and interviews and all of that, but to truly get a sense, you have to have the experience. In the case of customers, actually going and observing their environment. Where Pornima often sees young technical founders struggle. They get so caught up in the technology that what they fail to ask themselves the question of is, why would somebody want to buy this product? And why it's so important for technical talent from all backgrounds to give public speaking a try. What do you want tech to look like in the next five to 10 years, right? Who do you want to be working with? Who do you want to hear as voices? And if you can inspire one other person out there, then that's worth getting on stage and kind of getting over your fear. As someone who's been in the technical trenches, founded two companies, and is now advising those who look to do the same, Pornima has seen the product space from almost every angle. Let's get into the interview. Pornima, thanks so much for joining us on the show today. Thanks for having me, Adam. For the sake of our listeners who might not be as familiar with your work, could you give us the origin story of Femgineer? Tell us a little bit how it's grown from a personal blog to what it is today over nine years later. Sure. So as far as I remember, the moment I learned how to write, I started writing. I would write a lot of short stories, and I even tried to pursue writing a novel. But since the age of six, I have been writing. And somewhere along the way, I lost track of writing. I think it was around high school and middle school when I started doing more public speaking. And when I moved out to the Bay Area in 2004, a lot of people were talking about blogging. And I thought, okay, so what's blogging and why are all these people doing it? Well, one of my friends convinced me that a blog is a great way to have a public journal and just capture your thoughts and maybe it would be useful to your career later on. People might reference it, read it, and get a sense of who you are and the work that you've done. So I thought, okay, this is a great idea. And around um, 2006, 2007, I started working on my blog. And I wasn't really sure what I was going to write about at the time, but I figured, why don't I just write about what I'm working on? And at the time, I was the founding engineer at Mint, so what I was working on was engineering and entrepreneurship. And that's what I decided to write about. Of course, I had to have a website and a domain name. And as you can imagine, Pornima Vijay Shankar is just way too long and, you know, hard to spell and there's multiple spellings. So I figured I needed to come up with a moniker. And then I thought, okay, well, who am I? I'm, you know, female, I'm an engineer. Great, let's like slap that together. And Femgineer was born. And what I think is really interesting about your story is, Within the tech sphere, you've you've been on the technical side, you've gone and been a founder, you're on your second company now, and now you're advising other people on how to sort of get started and do that same thing through Femgineer. And one thing that ties all those different elements together in the workplace is something that you've written about frequently on the blog, spoken about, and that's the role that empathy plays in building a successful software product. And that's, I think a lot of people hear that and they think it's 
it's compassion in the workplace. And it is, but it's not just that. It's actual empathy for users that bleeds into process for product development, customer support, et cetera. So it's a, it's a big topic, but how can startups better understand their customers and align with teammates to actually build a better product that helps helps solve their needs? The real test of empathy is, of course, understanding your customers and your colleagues. And you're not going to have this understanding unless you walk a mile in their shoe. And so what that means is actually going through the experience. You can certainly do, you know, listening sessions and interviews and all of that. But to truly get a sense, you have to have the experience. And so what that translates to is in the case of customers, actually going and observing their environment or even being a part of that environment for a day, a week, a month, or however long it's going to take you. There was uh, a point where I was building BusyBee, which is a CRM solution for yoga studios. And a lot of my teammates would say, well, you know, it's not important that I know how a yoga studio works. It's just a CRM solution. And I said, no, we're not building a generic solution. We're building something that's custom. And so I almost forced everybody to go and spend a day at a yoga studio. And I said, look, I'm paying you to do this. So what's it to you? Just go and sit there. And they followed up. Uh, I had my technical co-founder do this. I had my designer do this. And as each person came back to me, they were amazed. They were like, wow, I didn't even know that's how a studio works. I didn't realize that at the last minute, all these students rush in and that check-in is a big part of their process. I didn't realize that not having enough students actually, you know, threatens the business and that there's this thing called memberships and all this stuff. Like, yeah, I kind of knew that that existed, but I didn't really see it through the lens of someone who had this experience, right? And so it really opened their eyes and it helped them to then understand what the workflow was that we were designing for that particular use case. Now, on the flip side, when we're talking about employees and colleagues, you know, understanding each other, it's not like you can take a designer and then say, okay, now you're going to be like an engineer for a day and and learn to do some, some code or, you know, vice versa. But what you can do is you can have them talk about their problems. So for example, on all the teams that I've been in, there's been that time where the engineer is like, where are the designs? I need designs so I can build this thing, right? And the designer's like, I need more time to make this thing pixel perfect. And so as a result, there's just a block and you don't know how to resolve that. And as a founder, you're like, we need to ship product. Like you guys need to figure this out, right? And so what it comes down to is one, understanding why the designer wants to make this thing pixel perfect and why being pixel perfect isn't good enough. And, you know, yes, it's important to get it to a point that they can be proud of their work, but you still have to build enough so that the engineer can can do their work, right? So we started kind of exploring a process of what would be good enough for the engineer to get started and for the designer to feel like, okay, I've made some progress. And that is kind of broken down into a few things. It's okay, here are the uh, mock-ups, you know, just in black and white. And from that, you have a general sense of the workflow and then vice versa. The designer can say, okay, now we have the high fidelity. So now you can, you know, do even more work, right? Well, that's the engineer understanding the designer. On the flip side, you've got the engineer who comes back and says, okay, so what's the air condition here? And what happens if 
they you know, forget their password or what is that going to look like? What's that experience going to be like, right? And so the designer's like, oh my goodness, there's so many scenarios. Like how many scenarios do you need? So what that means is the engineer has to take the time to express what their problems are, right? Or they might say, you know what? You're designing this UI with all this information. I have to go to the database, pull all this information out and figure out a way to display it in the browser and still have like a good performant product, right? And the designer needs to understand that. So ultimately what it comes down to is each side needs to talk about their particular problems, but they need to talk about it in a way that they're not saying things like, well, you know, I need to design this thing in Photoshop and it's going to take me X hours. And the engineers are like, I need to go to the database. You know, that doesn't make sense, right? Instead, if they can talk about it in the context of this is the business problem or this is kind of what we want to give consumers. But in order to give them that, here are some of the missing steps uh, and here are some of the problems I'm dealing with. Can we come to a level that's a compromise? And then putting that into the product and then building that into the process. Right, right. And so to me, when I hear that, I think as people come and people go in a business and you grow and scale, it really has to be instilled in culture. Um, and culture is so, so big. And that kind of relates to something else I've seen you talk about a lot, which is the rise of the the DEO, for lack of another term, the idea that the traditional C-suite leadership where they you know, haven't been in people's shoes from a technical or creative perspective um, are being replaced by more people with that type of experience. The designer founder is a huge thing. Um, at Intercom, our, our founders come from a design background. Airbnb is hugely known for that. How have you seen that type of, that the rise of the DEO impacting culture? Is design-led thinking now is it easier for people to work together in that sort of way? Sure. So I'll have to credit the originator of the moniker DEO, and that is Maria Judice, who is the VP of User Experience Design or Experience Design at Autodesk. And there are about six traits that she talks about, but I'll kind of boil it down to a couple that I think are sort of most important. So I think the first is this isn't talking about, you know, a designer versus an engineer, a designer versus a marketer. This is talking about someone who is taking a design thinking approach versus the old way, the sort of command and control way that CEOs or leaders were operating their business and leading their business. And so that change from command and control into one where there is more of a distribution in terms of who's building, who's making decisions, and how the company is growing is really the the change that's happened. And for that change to come about and to, to build that rich culture where people feel like they're contributing, they're being valued for their contributions, and they're able to kind of meet their business goals, the, the first trait that I see is co-creation. So a lot of these companies start off where the designer or wh- whoever the founder is starts by building the product. And what that means is they have this vision, they put out the initial version, and you know they're proud of it. But at some point in time, they realize it's not good enough or they want to get to the next level. They need to recruit more people. And then they need to share that co-creation. So it's not that they're the only ones who can create or design a product, but there are other people coming to the team that each have uh, what Maria calls a superpower, uh, as well as kryptonite, (laughs) right? And one person's sort of kryptonite, like an, you know, not to stereotype, but like an engineer's kryptonite might be messaging or, or wording and copywriting, and that might be a marketer's superpower, right? And so kind of need to collect all of this together in order 
order to build that end product. And so what that means is, you know, each person has their superpower that they need to work and the the DEO is thinking in in terms of, okay, we are now going to co-create. They're not thinking in terms of we're going to micromanage. They're not thinking in terms of, you know, this is command and control. You build what I say, but instead they sort of set up a framework that other people can operate. The, the second is having this uh, systems level thinking. So it's not just what's the bottom line, right? Kind of the old way of we just need to add value for shareholders and that's what matters, but instead thinking, okay, the work that we do impacts our employees. It impacts obviously our customers uh, and our community. And so we have all these people at the table that we need to service. How are we gonna go about doing that and of course, you know, our investors matter, but they're not the only group that matters. And so to be able to service all those people really requires you having that system level of thinking. And then I think one of the final traits that's really important is emotional intelligence. And this is something I think a lot of people struggle with, not because they don't care, but because it becomes less of a priority, right? The priority instead is, got to fundraise. Then the priority is got to monetize. And then maybe it's like, you know, got to exit. And so the end goal is always focused on, you know, one particular thing. And as a result, it's since that's the focus, you know, we've got to make it happen. And we're kind of in this sink or swim mentality. So, okay, yes, people will come and go, you know, we'll try our best, but it doesn't become a priority, right? And so what emotional intelligence or what that, that trait, why it's important is because they realize in order to hit that goal, actually, we have to be intelligent. We have to understand how our employees feel. We have to understand how our customers perceive our product and our brand. And of course, we still have to consider what you know our investors want. It's, it's not that we leave them out of the equation, right? So that takes a level of emotional intelligence, which is like being aware of our surroundings, understanding the people practicing empathy, which designers have been trained to do. And so for them, it becomes an additional trait in their leadership. And I think that those types of anecdotes and stories, when you talk about the way that design can be a um, key part of your product positioning strategy, um, you know, most of our listeners are early stage startup folks. They're trying to figure this out. And so, you know, we've we talked a lot on previous episodes about this idea um we're big at Intercom, we're big subscribers in the jobs to be done theory. And that this, there is, in a lot of ways, there's no new consumption. Someone's switching from one thing to something that maybe does the product faster, better, easier, fits their needs more effectively. So how can a new founder effectively use design to inform their positioning in that manner? And you know, is there something key that they should be designing too? Is it usability? Is it trust? Is it a combination of a lot of things? Yeah. Well, it boils down to what are you trying to do in the market? So going back to my days at Mint, there were already a handful of money management tools out there, right? There was Quicken, there was Microsoft Money, and then there were some smaller startups who were getting started. And so it's not like consumers lacked choice, but maybe they were unhappy with the choices that were out there. And so the discovery process for us was, One, who's actually unhappy enough with these products that they're willing to switch and what's it going to take for them to switch, 
right? Because some people might be unhappy, but then they'll just be like, "Ugh, I'm unhappy, but at least I know, you know, what's going on here. And so I'd rather just stay with the tried and true and trusted than try something that might be risky, right? Who wants to give a bunch of 20-somethings sitting in Silicon Valley their username and password to their bank accounts, right? So knowing that, we decided, okay, you know, given that there are people using Quicken and Digging into the demographics of the people using Quicken, they tend to be pretty affluent, they tend to be older, and they tend to really value trust and security. Well, as a young company starting out, trust it takes time to build, security certainly takes time to build, and going after this demographic might prove to be a problem because they're kind of happy. Maybe they're a little dissatisfied, but they're kind of unhappy. So then we decided, okay, if we can't go after that demographic, who do we know that we can go after? And we started to see this emergence of 20-somethings, um, 30-somethings, you know, basically millennials who really cared about their finances because they needed to. You know, they were budget conscious. They were paying off student loans. They're trying to make ends meet. They had all these financial goals, but they weren't sure how to do it. And for them, the growing frustration was, why can I bank online, but I can't actually, you know, see all of my finances? Or, you know, why can I connect with my friend online through Facebook? But again, why can't I see my finances, right? So we kind of knew there was some behavior change going on in the market and some people were more adapt to it and others weren't. And so then we decided, okay, you know, given that, how do we cater to these millennials? What do we need to do? And, you know, the first thing is they don't want to spend time. They don't want to spend energy. They want kind of everything to be push button. And so for us, a lot of the design focus was on automating everything, automating, pulling in your transactions, automating, showing all the graphs, like making it so that all you literally need to do is enter your username and password. Well, that brings up the next question of trust, right? So just because somebody is young doesn't mean that they are you know, stupid and un unwilling to trust. So we still had to do a lot in terms of gaining people's trust. And so that also got conveyed in the design and in the messaging. So it wasn't just designing the experience, it was also designing the interface to convey that level of trust. Because at the end of the day, if there is a snafu, then even these young folks who are a lot more vocal on social media are going to blast us, right? So that was really another key part. And so for us, the design wasn't just one element, it was multiple elements. And then I think the third and final, because we talked about positioning, right? So all the other products in the marketplace were clunky. With Quicken, you had to do a lot of manual work, and this was still an era of shrink wrap software, which is how you got Quicken and how you got Microsoft money. And so we saw the market moving more towards SaaS and doing more things online. And so that was kind of the stake that we put in the ground was, look, we are a SaaS solution. And again, we're automated and our design is going to speak to security and credibility. And so kind of all of these things came together. And what I tell people now is that you can't think of design as just one thing. Like, yes, usability matters, but that's not all. If you if you're not clear in your marketing and in your copy and if the experience isn't parallel to, you know, what you're saying, then people are just going to say, you know, there's something off here and, and drop off. So you've got to be careful about that. 
So ultimately, that's kind of how we developed our position in the market was thinking through kind of all of these factors and realizing it wasn't just one thing. And that's obviously a company that has has, has done pretty well for itself and was, I'm sure, such a huge learning process for you, not just on the software development side, but in a lot of aspects of the business that I guess ultimately you know helped inform you as you made the switch from engineer to founder yourself. So little more high level question here looking back um, you know what advantages did your technical background give you when you decided to make that leap and where did you find the more difficult learning curve well the first thing is people don't bs that much because they know that you're technical and they know you're <laughs> capable of building so as i was recruiting employees or as i was talking to people you know there was definitely a level of credibility that i had that maybe if i had been a business founder or even if I, if I had not worked at Mint, right, I wouldn't have had that. So investors were willing to take meetings with me. People who I'd emailed to try to recruit were responding to my emails and willing to interview. So I think that was a, a big advantage. You were able to leverage that. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. And that was, and that was important to do because, you know, what else, what else do I have? Right. So uh, I think you have to certainly leverage those. And I would say, you know, for the people listening who feel like they don't have a, a level of leverage, um, I would really dig in and, and understand your background. And even if you have a level of domain expertise, whether you're tech technical or not, right? That is something that's really worth advertising and marketing to, whether it's an investor, whether it's an employee or a customer. Now, I mean, shifting gears through Femgineer, you're obviously advising a lot of people on these types of things. And I'm sure that all these folks are super, super eager to get something shipped, even if it's, you know, they probably know it's nowhere near the finished thing, but just get something in the real hands of consumers. And it's a, it's a fast moving world. I mean, we, we ship product every day. So how do you, um, you know, get them to sort of slow down and make sure they're covering all those bases that you talked about, um, particularly those that have maybe less experience on the technical side. Um, you know, where are they rushing? Is it is it user research that you're seeing overlooked? Is it, you know, iteration and beta just wanting to get past that phase? So actually, I didn't answer the second part of your last question. I'm going to answer it cool. now. <laughs> you had asked me what was harder for me to do. And, and I'll explain. It, it'll lead into the second question as well. So what was harder for me to do was sales. Because as an engineer, what gives you the greatest sense of satisfaction is building and shipping and then hearing your customers, whether it's positive or negative, just knowing that someone is using your product is like the greatest source of motivation and accomplishment for you. Well, when I went from being a engineer to a founder, I had to stop. I wouldn't stop coding altogether, but I had to stop coding every day. And and slowly over time, I coded less and less. And eventually I hired a technical co-founder. Well, that left me with doing a few things, right? Left me with managing the product, doing sales and marketing. Well, I'm a decent writer, but I'm certainly not a marketer or a salesperson. In fact, I struggled with doing sales for the first year. Uh, I struggled so much that finally I just decided to hire somebody to do sales for me. But the problem was that I was doing more sales than that person. So I was like, okay, clearly something is off here. Yes. Because one, I not only need to learn how to do sales, but I also need to learn how to recruit salespeople. So I ended up putting myself through a boot camp where I learned how to do sales and over time became a lot more effective at it because the awesome thing about sales is much like engineering, it's a process. And so there is a logical structure and you follow it and you will actually make sales. And that was 
a challenge because initially you don't see anything. Like, you know, you'll go through 10 phone calls or 20 meetings and people will either be indecisive or say no. So there's a lot of rejection. You know, when you're an engineer, there's like, there's not really a whole lot of rejection. Yeah, there's some like bugs and people gripe about it, but Overall, you're not really getting rejected over and over again like you are when you're doing sales. So I also had to come to terms with that and understand that was part of the process. Now, the reason I say that this is important, because you asked the question, where do you see founders today not putting a lot of time and energy into is actually the sales and marketing. I think I see this over and over again, both technical and non-technical people. They get so wrapped up in the how They get so wrapped up in like, how am I going to build this? And should I go web versus mobile? Or should I do VR now? Or should I do like a smartwatch, right? And they get so caught up in the technology that what they fail to ask themselves the question of is, why would somebody want to buy this product? And not only why would they want to buy this product, but why would they want to buy it from me? And why now? And so these are some of the fundamental questions that I push people to ask themselves over and over again, because it will then ultimately determine their activities, you know, putting more emphasis into sales and marketing and not just product development. Like, yes, it's important to have a product and a prototype and get it out there and and do all of that because that's what people are going to use. But failing to develop an audience and get customers onto the platform ultimately means that you don't have a business. And the reason this is incredibly important is because right now, you know, we're kind of going through this process in the Valley where people are asking themselves the question, was this all a bubble? You know, people aren't doing as much investment. How are all these unicorns going to make money? And so this is another reason why companies that are early stage really need to be thinking about controlling their own destiny. And that might mean bootstrapping for six to 12 or 18 months. That might mean that they may or may not get that bridge round of investment that they wanted or that series A or series B. So how are they going to stay in business? Well, they got to figure out what to build to appeal to those customers and how to market it, right? So I think a lot of the challenges that we're experiencing today come back to us asking ourselves the question, why would somebody want to buy this from us and why would they want to do it now? And then, okay, you know, how do we manifest that into a product? What are the features that we need to build? Another way that I think we're seeing people sort of get their message out about how they think and the problems that their products may solve is actually through public speaking and appearing at events. And that's something that I know you started with writing, but you have a lot of experience that now you've done conferences across the globe. And You actually recently uh, co-wrote and released Present, A Techie's Guide to Public Speaking with the former Adobe OP and another diversity and tech advocate, uh, Karen Catlin. So why is it so important for technical folks to put themselves out there and share their expertise? I mean, externally, there's there's notoriety and there's, again, sort of marketing your company, but there are internal benefits too, right? Sure. So you talked about authenticity, right? And I would say the most authentic way to showcase yourself is not to have other people, you know, talk about you and say amazing things, but to actually get up there and showcase your work and talk about what you built, what your contribution was, the problems that you faced. And through this, there's an element of teaching, right? Somebody who is less experienced or curious about the topic is going to come out, but they're going to learn a lot from you. They're going to fast track their learning, avoid those mistakes and those kind of war stories that you went through, but it actually gives them a lot of value. And so that's a reason to speak. And for myself, you know, when I started speaking, 
now I started speaking in middle school and high school for debate because I was a shy kid and I realized that life was going to be really hard. So I decided to kind of do that in the most awkward years of my life. Then I returned to public speaking because in engineering school, I didn't have time. So I returned to it when I started working at Mint. But really, I thought, you know, I'm signing up for this conference and I'm doing it because I want people to know about Mint. I want them to know how we built it. And let's see where it goes from there. What was amazing was that there were all these different things that happened. So one of the things that happened was, yes, I started to develop a following from that. But the second thing that happened was people came up to me and said, are you hiring? And I said, yes, of course, there's a war on technical talent. (laughs) Of course I'm hiring. And so a lot of people would prefer to come up to me and talk to me as the person building the product or building the company versus a recruiter because they felt like there was a misalignment because when recruiters go there, you know, there's a bounty and all this stuff. So they don't feel like they're representing the company, but somebody working on the inside who's building the product, well, that's a teammate, right? That's somebody to learn from and that's somebody to get coaching from and that's who they want to work for. So it's incredibly important for recruiting alone that people send technical talent and not just their marketers and salespeople and recruiters out to speak. Now, aside from the recruiting side, there's also customers and customers actually feel very similarly to employees and and candidates. They want to know who are the makers and, you know, why are they motivated by this? How has this come about? So if you are in a B2B business or you're building a product that's for developers or designers, you know, a lot of people do API style businesses uh, like Twilio, for example, it's incredibly important that, you know, you have a conference and you get your makers, meaning your engineers, your designers, to go out and speak because that's who they want to be talking to. And it's a great way to do customer research face-to-face. Is it as simple as jumping in the deep end or is there a way to wade your way into it? So a couple things, you know, I think the first thing is just like I said, I was shy. A lot of people are shy. A lot of people are introverted, uh, especially designers and technical folks. Now, I'm not saying that's indicative of everyone. There are certainly a lot of extroverts out there. But for those who might worry, right, they worry about a number of things. They worry about what they look like, how they sound, whether they're an expert or not. And so what I often encourage people to do is, if you want, take a baby step. Just start by giving an internal presentation. You know, talk about what you just built or what your team just built. It's also a great place to onboard new employees. So use that as a stepping stone. And then from there, think about applying to speak at your local conference or go to a meetup. Meetups are always dying for speakers, right? And so it's another great place to get started. If you're in college, you can you know, be a teaching assistant and that's another great place. So there's all these channels and it's really about you taking the time to showcase the work that you've done. Now, Let's talk about the other issue of I'm not an expert, right? A lot of people who have been coding or designing, you know, they might say, well, I've only been doing this for two months, two years, or two decades, whatever that is. Well, it's actually a lot more simple. It's not about being an expert. People are coming out because they want to hear about your experiences and your perspective. Otherwise, they would just stay at home and read a book or do a Google search, right? So the reason they're coming out is they want to know what were the pains that you went through? Did it take you six years to learn you know, JavaScript? Or did it take you six months or six years to put a process in place that your team actually enjoys working with? So what are those war stories? And can you convey that to somebody so that you can fast track 
they're learning. And so then it comes down to, okay, great, but again, what's my expertise? So what we recommend is um, this method called the inventory method, where you take stock of everything you've worked on for the last three to 12 months. The reason we say three to 12 is because it's usually what's most relevant since we're in tech and moving quickly, but it's also what's freshest in your mind. And through that exploration, you'll start to uncover topics. Going, going back to one thing you said of this idea of, you know, one of the barriers being you look at a lot of conferences and may not see people with similar professional backgrounds or personal backgrounds or that look the same as you or think the same as you. I mean, you speak at a lot of these things. Why is diversity at tech events lagging so far behind? Is there an obvious path to improve it? Is that people that put these things on tend to rely on the same connections over and over and so they're not necessarily digging for fresh voices? It's all of the above. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's one, yes, laziness on the part of organizers because, you know, it's really hard to put a conference on and I, I give them credit. Like, it is hard to put a conference on to get the sponsorship, to run it smoothly. So often, yes, finding speaking talent is, you know, sometimes the lesser of those priorities. And so at the end of the day, hey, my friend Bob, he can show up and give a talk. Great. Is Bob capable of speaking? Yes. He's spoken at the last conference. Check out his YouTube video. Done. Right. So that's often what happens versus, OK, we need to be thoughtful about picking all of our speakers. There needs to be a balance in terms of voices. That's going to take time. That's going to take energy. Right. So that's a challenge. And then let's say you manage to, to convince somebody to speak and say like, oh, you know what? You've done a great job doing this design stuff. Then it comes down to, well, I just don't have the time. Well, why don't you have the time? Well, I'm really busy heads down shipping product. Okay, but this is just like a one day, 45 minute or even five minute lightning talk. Uh, and then what you start to uncover is people are scared to speak. It's the number one fear in the world. So you can't fault them for that. They also might not feel like they're an expert. They look at the roster and say, oh my gosh, like Eric Reese is speaking at this conference. You know, why would I speak as well? Uh, and so there's there's some of that going on. And ultimately, it means that organizers have to try harder, right? They have to try harder when it comes to recruiting, but they also have to try harder when it comes to identifying the voices, persuading people to, to step up. And so as a result, you see the same voices, you see the same people speaking over and over again, um, which is why we wrote the book, right? We wanted people to kind of get over that level of shyness, of introversion and that fear and give them some baby steps and make them realize this isn't any harder than building a product. In fact, a lot of the methodologies that we talk about are analogous to building a product. The main difference is in one case you ship it and you don't really see people. In the other case, you're standing in front of people and, and you know you have to come to terms with that. Um, so what I would say is for people out there who might have been given an opportunity to speak and the only thing that is holding them back from getting up there and getting on stage and speaking is to think about what do you want tech to look like in the next five to 10 years, right? Who do you want to be working with? Who do you want to hear as voices? And if you can inspire one other person out there, then that's worth getting on stage and kind of getting over your fear, right? Uh, and so I think that's important to put it in that context. Well, hopefully we'll have a few new storytellers from listeners of this show, and we'll be sure to include in the show notes where we can catch you speak in the near future. Um, thank you so much for joining us today, Pornima. I think we'll leave it there. Great. Thanks for having me, Adam. 
You've been listening to the Inside Intercom podcast. For more episodes, just visit soundcloud.com forward slash intercom. And if you want to subscribe, search for Inside Intercom in iTunes or Stitcher. And for even more great content, check out blog.intercom.io. 